Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are delighted to have with us uh, two experts in the energy field, Alex Trembath from the Breakthrough Institute and Robert Bryce, uh, film producer, journalist, and host of the Power Hungry podcast. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having me. With you. Today we're going to be talking about the impact uh, on the energy world of Russia's military moves in Ukraine. Joe, so, you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, basically, what we're seeing now in the wake of the Russian invasion and all the issues around Russian oil and gas, and, and even some from the Ukraine, what, how has the debate changed? And is it just a temporary change? Or are people thinking in very different ways than they were beforehand? Um, Go ahead, Alex. Alex, particularly, let's say, in the environmental world where you come from. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Joel. And thanks, Robert. And thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I think it's a pretty tectonic shift in the way <laughs> that we think about our energy supply and our sort of status as energy consumers. Um, so, you know, post-Russian invasion, I think we're dealing with, for the first time in, in really decades, we're, we're dealing with really sort of salient, sharp sense of energy insecurity and, and potential for sort of heightening energy shortages. The, this might just be the beginning. Um, and, you know, we can get into sort of what that means for energy prices, for energy supply, uh, for sort of strategic decisions that countries, especially in Europe, are going to make, but also um, in, uh, in North America and Asia, gonna, and Asia are going to make um, regarding their energy supply. Um, but I do think about this from a sort of environmental perspective. And I would just observe that the, the sort of conversation that we've been having about the global environment, about climate change over the last 10, 15 years, especially, you know, since since the release of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and since uh, since the Obama administration, since we started paying a lot more attention to climate change in the last 10, 15 years, was really a period of certainly uh, global energy abundance, really, um, relative to history, um, and especially American energy abundance. So this is this is the same period during which the U.S. fracking revolution occurred, which was initially sort of a wash of new natural gas resources in the United States and um, and a little bit later, oil resources to the point where um, we have the most abundant and cheapest natural gas on the planet in the United States, and that has had all sorts of implications and we actually produce more oil than we consume for the first time in almost a century in the United States. Um, and so the, the way that we think about climate change occurred when fossil fuels um, and really all energy um, technologies uh, across the portfolio were really abundant. Um, and, it, and it was easy to talk about, oh, our energy is too cheap or, oh, we have too much or we need to be cutting back. Um, those frames made uh, were, were a little bit gentler, I think, um, a little bit more simpatico. Um, but once you have energy shortages, once you have not just the threat of energy insecurity, um, but the reality of the of the tap being shut off, um, of, of real shortages uh, of, of oil and natural gas, especially, but um, uh, sort of price spikes and shortages across the energy supply chain, I think it gets a lot harder um, to talk about sort of cutting back. Um, it gets harder to, to talk about punishing the fossil fuel industry. Um, and I would make just one observation um, before I, I hand it over to Robert, which is that, you know, for, for a long time, what we've heard is that fossil fuels are too expensive. We need to be regulating them tighter. We need to be putting a price on carbon. I'm generally in favor of a lot of those things. 
Um, but you'll notice that since the Russian invasion, um, uh, senators like Elizabeth Warren have been saying that fossil fuels are now price gouging their customers and making energy too expensive, making oil and gas too expensive for consumers. You see the Sunrise Movement, you know, one of the biggest uh, progressive environmental activist communities, making the same charge that fossil fuels are too expensive today and it's hurting consumers, um, which is the kind of whiplash um, that, that I think is indicative of this total tectonic shift that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, Robert, what's your what's your take on it? Sure. Well, I think Alex hits on some really key points there. And I think um, and I say this is a nonpartisan, right? I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm disgusted. But the, <laughs> I mean, the Democrats are scared. I mean, they really and they should be because, you know, consumers stand there for two or three minutes and they look at the price of gasoline and they sit there and they watch it and they know what that price is. They may not tell you what they know, you know, what the price of the milk is that they bought at the store last week, but they can tell you to the penny how much they bought for their, their how much they paid for their gasoline. So from a pure populist and, you know, just retail politics standpoint, Democrats are scared and well, they should be. And, you know, they're trying to shift this blame and they had this show hearing, you know, with the house, you know, you know, let's flagellate these oil executives for making these unconscionable profits. And, you know, it's silly when you compare their profit margins to Apple or Google. I mean, it's just not even comparable, but, but back to the energy realism, and I think that, that Alex hit it exactly right. I think this is an inflection point. And you see after I'm just looking at a, a chart here, a price chart on trading economics on the price of coal, the Newcastle benchmark. On February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it went vertical. I mean, it went from from about, uh, yeah, about $160, and then it peaked at over $430. Now, it's settled now to about 300 But remember, at the beginning of 2021... Uh, a ton of coal coming out of Newcastle was under $100. And then you have the price of natural gas in the U.S. at Henry Hub is under 6 today in Europe at the TTF trading hub. It's uh, $34. So almost, uh, you know, five times, five or six times what we're paying here in the U.S. So it's but remember, I think this uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that while we're talking a lot about the U.S. and Western Europe, what is happening in India? What's happening in Asia? China just announced in the last few weeks they're going to increase their coal production by 300 million tons a year. That increase, that just that increase is equal to half of all U.S. coal production. So uh, I think that there, this has this, these shockwaves that are happening, not just in energy, but in food because of, of the, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, they're going to last for a very long time. Well, let, let's focus a little bit on that last point about food, because I think that you're right. People are very sensitive to the price of gas at the pump, and that's what they think of when they think of oil, right? And they think of the, the stopping of that. It, most people, at least in the United States, don't think about the implications on natural gas and heating in Europe. And the last thing they think about is supply chain disruptions when it comes to the food supply. So do you think... I mean, we've gone on this huge movement toward um, toward organic foods, toward to food production for using less uh, petrochemicals. Um, given the state here of of supply, uh, is that going to shift back? Are we going to be? How are we going to adapt to that? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So uh, a lot of the conversation, um, as as you as you gesture at, is focused on oil and gas for good reason. Um, but there are there are a couple other sort of uh, supply uh, bottlenecks and insecurities to pay attention to here. One is to remember that Russia and Ukraine are major global exporters of wheat, um, which which is uh, you know essential to nutrition um, you know across the globe. Um, and it's really important to remember the thing I, I think a lot of people forget is that the most important feedstock into synthetic 
synthetic fertilizer production is methane, is natural gas, um, uh, where, where we're seeing uh, price increases of two, three, five X um, uh, in, in certain markets around the world. And that makes food more expensive. Um, and, and, you know, again, I think, um, you know, to your question, Marshall, um, about sort of organic versus sort of industrial agriculture and how the Russian invasion of Ukraine will affect how we shop at the grocery store and how we think about our, um, our, our consumer purchases of food. You know, I think it's um, I think it's relatively easy um, to talk about the sort of benefits of uh, high-priced organic agriculture, um, you know, at the grocery store um, or, or sort of niche production of organic agriculture when it's a small um, chunk of the of the global agricultural system, which is overwhelmingly uh, reliant on synthetic fertilizers, on um, on uh, hydrocarbons, on uh, irrigation, on tractors, on um, on on, uh, on pesticides, on on these you know sort of massive industrial uh, inputs into our food system. It's it's sort of easy to imagine that organic can replace all that um, when uh, again in in an uh, era of relative uh, nutritional abundance, like we have been living in mostly, um, you know, uh, the supply of food and the security of food supplies has been increasing for decades. Um, and I don't know exactly, um, uh, what the sort of ripple effects of, uh, of the situation in Ukraine are going to have on food supplies. Um, but when food gets expensive, it's, I think it starts to get, uh, I think it starts to get harder, uh, to, to imagine, um, that the, that this other, this whole other, system of producing food, um, which is not reliant on synthetic fertilizers. It's, it's reliant on cover crops and manure for, for fertilizers. It's not reliant on industrial pesticides. All of these things that make organic food more expensive, um, that, that kind of works when you have uh, 80, 85, 90% of your food supply um, coming from cheap industrial food. Once, uh, once food gets expensive at the same time as energy is getting expensive, I think it, I think it becomes a little bit harder um, to, to sort of make that fit. I just want to ask, there seems to me that, that there would be political implications on two levels. One, domestically inside the United States, where energy producing areas and also middle and working class people are affected immediately. You know, they're not out there buying a Tesla, um, although right now, given the electricity prices, the Teslas might not even be cheaper than gasoline. But uh, but the but. You have that domestically, but also on a global level. Are we also seeing a, you know, if we have a class divide, um, both domestically, but also on a global level? I mean, issues that are going, to, like I have somebody working on in South Africa right now on the issue of, of, of food scarcity throughout Africa. So um, is this going to have this energy surge going to have implications for, for politics, both globally and nationally? Well, I can just speak to, I'm just looking at some some uh, price tickers here. So uh, wheat prices year on year up 63%, palm oils up 57%, milk 36%, cheese 30%, uh, orange juice 54%, coffee up 81%, cotton 61%, uh, oats up 109%, canola 42%. Um, you know, my, my, my mom used to own some wheatland in, in Oklahoma. She would love this, right? The, you know, with, with these prices. But what, you know, this is social unrest, the Arab Spring. Some people point to food prices as one of the reasons of the catalysts for that. But I think that if we pull back, though, the thing that is obvious to me, and I've been making this point for a while, but 
the, the, what these these fertilizer shortages and the and the soaring price of fertilizer show yet again the all renewable lie was a lie it's been a lie all along and it's been promoted by some very powerful interests and there are a lot of big businesses in America that are profiting from this because of this belief that we can run the world on renewables we can't replace the Haber-Bosch process. We cannot replace the fertilizer that we get from natural gas. And the full stop, as Alex Epstein says, it's, and it's exactly right, hydrocarbons are the food of food. And now we're seeing these knock-on effects. And what I fear is that this is going to take years to work out because Europe is not going to be able to re, uh, you know, restart its drilling sector in anything like the short term. So there's going to be stress in natural gas markets. Um, we already see it in, in Europe. LNG from the U.S. is going to be able to fill in some of the supply but remember, that's high-priced hydrocarbons, which is one of the reasons why we see utilities in Europe rushing back to buy as much coal as they can, and there are limits on the availability of coal as well. Um, but this is not. This is going to be a years-long. Uh, yeah. So, so the question that 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 brings up is, uh, I mean, that brings up a million realignment questions. Really. You know, the first one is uh, Paris Climate Accords. Um, given the strategic imperative of feeding people and heating people's homes. Um, do you think that we will be seeing a lightening up or a backing away from the implementation of Paris supports over the next couple of years? I, I think it's important to remember that the Paris Accords are a a, a voluntary pact among nations. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about the Paris Accords in relation to the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature target, um, which is a, uh, a, a prospective um, sort of hopeful target that was mentioned um, in the context of the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement was really an agreement um, among nations uh, to utilize their uh, uh, independently national determined contribution to, to global climate action, uh, the, the INDCs as they were called, the NDCs, um, which was really just asking nations to do as much as they can uh, to reduce their emissions. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a fundamentally voluntary and actually pretty flexible uh, sort of superstructure for thinking about international climate negotiations and climate action. Um, but it also doesn't have really any teeth whatsoever. whatsoever. So, so the imperative is feed your people people are going to say, of course, we're going to we're going to lighten up on compliance with those kinds of with, with those power support. Well, look, look what India is doing. India is basically taking a neutral position on this. And that's the world's biggest democracy. Yeah. You know, I, and I think that um, uh, I, I think that just structurally, um, but, you know, barring some some crazy inflection point in human population and technology that we are in the midst of a of a, of a long term um, at least plateau, um, and, and if and most likely um, sort of a gradual at least decline of global carbon emissions. You know, over right. the next 10, 20 years, I don't think that we'll have them within the next couple of decades, um, or any any of the really amb ambitious hopes of, of the climate community. Um, but I think you know, with um, the sort of rise of the of the global middle class, the uh, the shift to sort of knowledges and services of the of the global economy, and the shift, um, uh, you know. 
increasing sort of industrial efficiency and end use efficiency and the shift from coal to natural gas, not just in the United States, but around the world. And natural gas is about half the emissions intensity of coal, um, that emissions are in a sort of structural decline, um, uh, not a not a sort of dramatic one, but uh, at least a gradual one, um, uh, which has sort of buffeted the, um, I think, the vision of climate action among uh, among the international climate negotiators, among the sort of environmental and climate community. But again, that's uh, it's, it's very easy to feel very optimistic about in an era of structural uh, emissions decline, of energy abundance, um, where you can sort of uh, subsidize renewables, maybe maybe build some nuclear plants, depending on the, so the sort of um, uh, disposition of your national leadership. Uh, you can you can deploy electric vehicles. I think we'll start doing a lot more of that. But we're also going to see coal come back in Europe as these nat natural gas prices rise. I think we're going to see uh, uh, oil and gas production in uh, in, the, in places like North America tick back up. And I think there's going to be broad support for that, uh, you know, uh, obviously not from the climate community, but from, from Republicans and Democrats. Um, so I think that moments like these, uh, rare as they are, really throw into sharp relief what um, what people care about. Um, and it's and it's easy to care about uh, climate action. And it's easy, easy to, to care about cutting back on fossil fuel production. It's easy to care about things like quote unquote, punishing the fossil fuel industry when fossil fuels are highly abundant. Um, and when when the taps turn off and when Europe is threatened with uh, blackouts this winter, depending on the, the status of imports of Russian oil and gas, and when prices at the pump uh, in North America are what they are, they're like $6 a gallon where I live in Northern California, um, then I, I think that starts to reorganize people's priorities. Now, Robert, um, you're a market guy. You follow markets all the time. You, under, you, you view the world in terms of kind of the, the market alternatives that, that ebb and flow as supply and demand change. What are there fundamental shifts in the market that you think will be long term for, for these kinds of uh, different alternative fuels that you think will be with us for a while? Well, sure. And I think one of the key things here, uh, Joel mentioned India, but I think that the <clears throat> we already saw this before February 24th, before the invasion of Ukraine, it was the China and Russia tying more closely together, right? So you had, I think now roughly two years ago, the opening of the beginning of, of gas shipments from uh, Russia to, to China through the power of Siberia pipeline. This is a massive project, 5,000 mile long natural gas pipeline, $400 billion in contracted delivery over 30 years. And then they just in the last uh, few months announced the power of Siberia 2 pipeline. So uh, there's no doubt that this pushes and you had the recent vote. I think it was just yesterday at the UN to to throw Russia out of the Human Rights Commission who voted against it, China. So uh, the, 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 the closer ties from chi with China between China and Russia are we're already begun. I think that's going to be clearly that's going to to they're going to become even more closely aligned. Yeah, so, so what that really means, right? What that really means is that if if Russia loses Europe as a customer for its natural gas, they'll just pipe the stuff south. And that, in fact, if you look at the aggregate demand, which is kind of where you were going with all of this, yeah. um, the Chinese can more than absorb the, oh, yes. the supply that's coming out of those two pipelines or the two uh, production sources, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I'll just add one other quick thing, which is that I think that 
the other effect here, and we see it already here in the U.S., and I've been writing about this for a long time, and I'm a you know, long-time critic of the renewables business because of their land use issues. Last Saturday in Lovell, Maine, a very sm- a small town in Maine, they voted 80% to 20% against a large new solar project that was proposed in the town. This is just the latest example of these land use conflicts that are limiting the growth of renewables and therefore, I think, forcing more energy realism. It's slow, but it's but it's real. And these land use conflicts are at play in Europe as well. So it, the, the energy realism is going to be on price. It's going to be on land use. And it's going to be on, as you said, Marshall, you know, the, the feeding your people and keeping the lights on. Yeah, well, the, 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 go ahead, Joel. Well, I, you know, and I'd like to focus a little bit on China, because China, as you mentioned, is the big beneficiary of, in many ways, in terms of they're probably getting better deals on natural gas from Russia now than they might have before. Um, but do you think in a sense we're playing a game of rope-a-dope? You know, if you go back to the Muhammad Ali where China says, oh yeah, we're going we're going to reduce our emissions in 2060. Or, you know, meanwhile, um, we're going to use coal, natural gas while you're, you know, having uh, you know, unreliable, super expensive energy. Um, and we're just going to end up deindustrializing you and then oh yeah and then when china finally does its nukes and you know china will do what it needs to do on on climate eventually but by then the 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 western world will be a vacation spot for rich chinese i think the the danger um is is partly what you get at joel and and partly that china is actually very serious about both its short-term and its long-term commitments so you can you can um you can absolutely think of the sort of China net zero by 2060 um, as uh, as a sort of uh, uh, really exciting on paper, but not much else. Um, I, I think that. What, uh, what do you mean by that, Alex? I just like. Could you explain that? I, I mean that we should take all of these long-term decarbonization net zero commitments with with a grain or two of salt. Um, whether it whether it's Gavin Newsom saying that we're going to have no internal combustion engines on the road in California by 2035, or whether it's Xi Jinping saying that China is going to be net zero by 2060. Um, I, th- I think that there is some am- some genuine ambition and some genuine sort of thinking in there. I, I think that I tend to be degrees more optimistic about sort of long-term decarbonization than Robert is. You know, I, I think, for instance, that, uh, you know, hydrogen produced fertilizers or some of these microbial coatings on seeds to capture nitrogen could be very, uh, very effective and promising in the long term. Um, but I do think, um, uh, to take one example, but but I do think that Robert is, is exactly right, that it is moments like the post-invasion of Ukraine that throw into sharp relief the this the sort of nature of our energy production realities today and the nature of our energy supplies today. It's one thing to say we're going to decarbonize by 2050, 2070. It's one thing to say we can get off the Haber-Bosch process in the long term. It's one thing to it's one thing to say that we're going to we're going to have, you know, grid scale energy storage supporting wind and solar, you know, later this century. Um, you know, those are those are sort of helpful uh, visions for, I, th- I think, sort of climate messaging and climate activism um, that become a lot less helpful in a, in a crisis um, uh, and, and a lot less useful, uh, again, right. when crisis right. spike and, and supplies are disrupted. But but there's also there's a there's another game that I think is going on that I at least I would love to get your opinion on. So imagine this for a moment. If you're Xi Jinping and you're Putin. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting and you're talking together and you're saying, hey, how do we beat these guys? How do we, you know, 
Xi Jinping, and I believe this is the this is the ultimate strategic objective of China, is to be the place in the world that makes everything. And therefore, the world will become dependent upon China, whether that is physical things or whether it's digital things. China is seeking to be the leader in all of that. And so, of course, if you're going to be the leader in all of that, you're going to need to ha have guaranteed supply of the energy that's required to make the physical things. So, or, and by the way, required to make the digital thing because you need electricity also. So it's very clear that that Putin would be a ally of, of uh, China to be able to make that happen as a block. But the, the question that I have is, does the resulting, does that result in basically a free for all for everybody else to become as self-sufficient as possible and not get sucked into that game? So does that bring on a, um, a new era of national self-interest in every country, and maybe, maybe, arguably, the EU can stick together as a block, and uh, because the countries themselves don't have the scale to be able to compete. Do you think we're going to see kind of a revert, a reversion back to kind of overall nationalist self-interest, and and especially in the U.S. Um, self-sufficiency kinds of strategies? I'll, I'll jump in there, Matt Marshall. I think that there, there is, we already saw even during the COVID era, a push for more reshoring, particularly on pharmaceuticals. But I think that, you know, what if there, I know Joel is, has somewhat more of a bleak outlook than I do, but there could be a scenario where we see this reshoring accruing to the benefit of the U S because you have industrial companies leaving Europe and coming to the U S because we have the rule of law and we have low cost energy, particularly compared to Europe. So we saw some of this in the, during the shale revolution, fertilizer makers, other big industrial outfits, petrochemical companies coming to the U S to the Gulf coast of Louisiana that may well accelerate. But I think the, you know, the other point there that, and, and I'll just bring up the issue of supply chains here, which is that, you know, when you look at these, these alternative technologies, I don't call them green technologies, they're alternative energy technologies, those prices for, and those commodities are controlled by the, by China. I'm looking at the lithium price. It's up 450% over the last year. So this idea, oh, we're going to have large scale grid storage. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is, you know, this is Elon Musk's long bet, but it's not, of course, just lithium. It's cobalt. It's a uh, neodymium, which is a key, key issue in, in, uh, or key component of magnets up 60%. China and nickel, you know, up a hundred percent. You know, th these are commodities that China and or Russia control the um, dominant share, if not a monopoly share in these critical commodities. So it, the reshoring and, and by the way, and, and require ways, tremendous amount of energy to extract. Oh, yeah, of course. So you so you, you have to have you have to have an energy supply even to be able to get the stuff out of the ground and refine it to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think that anyone really knows how the sort of production side uh, is going to shake out in the long term. I, I do think that I think my guess would be is we have a significant reshuffling of industrial production. Um, and I, I say this hopefully away from uh, away from China and Russia, um, not not to the not to a, a future status where every nation on Earth is mostly self-sufficient. I think we'll, we'll continue to be a global specialized industrial economy uh, and a, and a, and a, and a, a, a 
with, with sort of significant global trade. Um, but I, I think if we uh, if we're lucky, um, then we actually diversify global supply chains away from places like Russia and China, but not just Russia and China. And what what worries me. Um, is the sort of pass blocking that the environmental community in the rich world is doing for regimes like Xi Jinping um, uh, on the on the on the sort of uh, renewable energy uh, and uh, and minerals and materials production side. Um, and we've seen this uh, uh, for years um, and it gets sort of, I think, less and less excusable every year that goes by and especially less and less excusable after the invasion of Ukraine. Um, you, you see uh, climate hawks in places like Europe and the United States uh, inveighing against the rest of us to not piss China off too much um, and, and to... Um, and, and to not pursue, uh, you know, sort of hawkish posture towards China on things like, you know, little things like human rights violations um, and 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 and, th- and throwing um, uh, and throwing Uyghur Muslims into concentration camps and cracking down on protests in Hong Kong. Um, that those are all terrible things. But China is producing most of the, almost all the world's solar panels, um, you know, lithium, rare earth metals, the things that we need to address the real emergency, which is climate change. Um, and, and I think that that has long been untenable and, and really, um, uh, really appalling, uh, sort of morally and actually uh, geopolitically. Um, and I think we're still seeing it. And I think it'll, it'll uh, lose purchase uh, much, much more quickly um, in this sort of new geopolitical reality that we're in today. Sure, I sure hope so. Contemptible, disgusting. I can think of a whole lot of adjectives, Alex, that go along with what you just said. Yeah. Oh, well, let's not irritate the Chinese because they make our solar panels in polysilicon. And oh, well, what's, you know, just a few Uyghur Muslims. Well, the State Department last year instituted bans on on the importation of polysilicon from the major uh, polysilicon uh, producers in Xinjiang province. So yeah, the, there are a lot of issues that are coming together here. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Alex. I think the, the actions of the Natural Resources Defense Council in particular have just been contemptible in this way. You know, and it's funny because it's ironic because this is a the, the theme of this podcast is Joel's book about the reemergence of feudalism and the, the idea that we would have <clears throat> the economic choke points for the world economy, not just the growth economy, but the actual Sustain, sustaining economy of the world with food production and energy production be beholden to the new feudal overlords of the Chinese and the Russians. It's just kind of uh, kind of crazy to me. I just wonder, I wonder, um, obviously, everybody, I think most people see the absurdity of having the, um, the, the, the tremendous concentration of mineral extraction and manufacturing be centered in one place. I just wonder how quickly our own policymakers are going to be able to actually jump on that. Because I think they're actually, because of the fact that we do have the energy sources in the United States that that are available to us, we are at a strategic advantage uh, here in the US for things like reshoring and being a viable competitor to the to the Eurasian bloc, right? right. To the to the uh, Russian Russian Chinese bloc. Joel, what what are your history as you kind of look at, at history on this? Uh, any thoughts about from history uh, that, of things that might indicate what might happen in the future? Well, I think there's there's going to be I think a great game that will now open, which is that uh, there will be this this hunt for energy, and you're going to have this diversion between those people who want to deal with the you know the real 
the the real situation, you know, food and stuff like that, and those who still live in this sort of ideological, theological universe. Um, and what we know is that when people uh, act based on on some sort of faith, uh, they often make mistakes, and they often are convinced that they're the master race or the or the the uprising class, whatever it is. And I think that the environmental movement has sort of taken that on. Now, I, I, what I'd love to do in terms of in, in wrapping this up is saying, look, what do you what what do you see for the next year in the energy world, and what do you see politically? How is this going to affect 2022? And you know, sort of like if you were going to say, okay, it's January uh, 2023, what do you think the world is going to look like? from an energy and political perspective. So I don't know who wants to go first. Yeah, um, my my guess is that, uh, and I, I wouldn't want to make any hard predictions, um, but my, my guess is that this is the beginning, not, the, uh, not the, the end or even the middle of our energy security woes, both uh, in uh, North America, and especially in Europe and, and around the world, that food and energy prices will remain elevated through the end of 2022. Uh, in terms of um, American politics, I think that will make what was already a foregone conclusion look, uh, look like a wave um, uh, for, uh, for Republicans uh, during the midterm elections um, in, in November. Um, and I, and I suppose the one thing that I would say about that, you know, I, I think that that Marshall's right that, you, that the United States especially is blessed um, both geographically and uh, economically and technically with energy abundance. Still, you know, it's a global oil market; prices are expensive, but we produce more energy than really any other country on the planet. You know, from hydrocarbons um, to de- deploying advanced technologies like solar panels and um, and and hope and uh, and hopefully some advanced geothermal and carbon capture and nuclear plants. Um, uh, so, and I, I think um, so. I, I think uh, when Republicans take office, and I don't really think it's an if anymore, um, they will be presented with an opportunity to capitalize on uh, on accelerating energy abundance in the United States um, through investments in um, uh, in energy production, um, whether it's minerals or fuels um, or low carbon technologies. And um, I, th- I think if they do it right, they have a big opportunity um, to uh, to reform the uh, the things that um, the, the things that put a damper on energy abundance in the United States. And that's uh, that's a lot of things, but it's it's overwhelmingly sort of environmental regulations, things like the National Environmental Protection Act, the Wilderness the Wilderness Act, the Jones Act. Um, uh, the, these regulations that make it really hard to build things in this country. Um, they are not the only obstacles to building things. We don't have an experienced workforce. We have other regulations outside of environmental law. Um, there are a whole bunch of things in our decadent society that make it difficult to build. Um, but I but I think that uh, this moment um, in North American politics, probably European politics, um, should, um, should redound to some serious consideration of our sort of regulatory regime that makes it difficult or impossible Possible to produce uh, commodities, to build infrastructure projects, to to build power plants, um, to build pipelines, and, and things like that. Um, uh, and gotta I gotta so. interrupt you. I've gotta interrupt you to ask you this question because yeah. it's like, here you're going through the litany of, of, of regulation. Do you think this will trickle down to California? <laughs> yeah, um, I. 
I, I, I would hope so. Um, you know, California is probably, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the vanguard of the environment of the sort of environmental movement, which would probably mean it's, it's sort of last in line, um, to, to change its thinking on things like environmental regulation, um, and, and things like, uh, you know, th things that policies that make energy more expensive for, for low or, or building the thing regulation that make it impossible to build here. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I think Marshall's getting at the, the California Environmental Quality Act, which is like the National Environmental Policy Act on steroids. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say it's, it's one thing um, uh, to uh, to reform CEQA, um, reform the Environmental Quality Act, um, to ensure that there are more undergraduates at UC Berkeley, um, which was the result of the, of, the, of the latest legislation in Congress. And I fully supported that exemption to CEQA um, uh, so that more students could be admitted to, to UC Berkeley. It's a weaponization of environmental law. Um, but I think it'll I think it'll be a lot harder to reform CEQA when it comes to building uh, transmission lines and and, uh, and and solar farms and high speed rail and all the things that climate hawks say that we really need, but uh, oppose every time they're actually being deployed. Or housing. I'll just add a couple of quick things. One is that I, I, I too see a, 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 the advantage, at least, you know, we're here in April. So, you know, a lot happens between now and, and November, but given Biden's relative weakness, uh, given a 50, 50 Senate, um, it sure appears the moment that Republicans are going to, you know, control both houses, uh, beginning in January of 2023. What I would hope to see is that there's more energy realism in terms of the nuclear sector in the United States, that this is, said it over and over and I'll keep saying it. There's no way to achieve any scale in decarbonization without widespread adoption of, of nuclear. But right now, the nuclear sector in the United States is all but dead. And I say all but dead. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is just a big obstacle to the deployment of any new nuclear in this country. And in fact, well, and there's new technology there, right? That there's is, plenty that of new promising new technology. And, and but we're still a decade away from the deployment of even one new reactor. I mean, this is a pitiful situation. China's building 46 reactors. We're building two. Um, what we've seen in Europe, I think, is interesting as well, is that you see the Belgians saying they're going to extend the life of their nuclear plants. Macron in France has said, we're going to double down. We're going to work on SMRs. Um, meanwhile, Germany, there's no explaining Germany. They're going to go ahead and close their nuclear reactors. But uh, I, I, I think, in, you know, in January, we're going to see we're going to have passed through a summer this summer. I think we're going to see significantly higher prices in oil because the demand is shows no we haven't seen any destruction in demand so far. Um, and and supply has been constrained. So I think consumers by November are going to be tired of this and uh, they're going to be wanting more realism. And I hope we get it. So the question becomes uh, how we, we've dealt with the long term. We've dealt with the strategic issues of the realignment of nations and of blocks of nations. And we've looked at kind of the short-term implications, both politically and of uh, the impact of, of, uh, of shortages on food prices and on the rest of the economy. I guess the last question for the two of you is this. Looking past, say, the next year or two, are you optimistic or pessimistic when it comes to where things are going to turn out. You think there'll be some kind of positive synthesis that comes out of all of this? I'm as ever optimistic in the long term. I am uh, I'm concerned uh, about uh, about the medium term, as you sort of describe it, Marshall, not just the next sort of six weeks, but the next several years. I, I think we we are in 
uh, for potentially a years long, if not crisis, then significant discomfort in, uh, in global supply of energy and food. Um, I, and I think uh, that can be an impetus towards really sort of an energy abundance agenda, sort of doubling down on innovation, um, you know, sort of building more infrastructure, uh, diversifying global supply chains for, uh, for fuel and for technologies. Um, but you actually have to go do those things. Um, and I think the sort of track record of the rich countries, especially um, the United States and, uh, and, and the EU bloc, um, is, uh, is, is lacking when it comes to um, sort, of, uh, sort of impressive industrial production um, over the last 20, 30 years. Um, so I, I think this is exactly the kind of thing that should um, uh, should create uh, in, enough sort of momentum for reforms, for reshoring uh, of, of sort of a, a th things that it makes sense to reshore, um, for uh, sort of reforming our, our regulatory regime uh, to make building infrastructure and building sort of uh, uh, industrial production capacity. Um, but we're... Uh, uh, it, I, I, I want to believe it. Uh, I will continue in my capacity to push for it, but there are headwinds, I guess, is, is how I think about it. Robert, last word to you. Oh, well, I wanted to hear what Joel had to say. I don't know. It's not my podcast, but I, I, I think I will. I always hear, like to hear what Joel has to say, but I think he, he would give it a somewhat pessimistic. Is that, am I allowed to make that, make that request? Um, you know, I mean, I think syst historically systems do rebalance. I mean, we were, total isolationist um, in the 1930s. And when given the proper stimulus, now hopefully there won't be a Pearl Harbor, uh, we, America has a history of reacting and reforming itself, usually later than it, than it would have been advised, uh, usually five, 10 years too late. But, you know, we're not a completely stupid country. Um, and, um, and the, the reality is that, thank God, AOC and, uh, and Nancy Pelosi are not permanent dictators. Um, so that I think I think there, 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 there can be some uh, positive change. The big question is, will enough of the Democratic Party break the party line and start thinking the way like what's even the way like Alex is talking about? Uh, that's my biggest question. So it's still the last word to you, Robert. <laughs> well, fair enough. So I, I'm uh, to quote the late Molly Ivins. I'm optimistic to the point of idiocy. I'm I'm long the U.S. I, you know, the U.S. has a lot of structural advantages relative to the rest of the world, including our belief in the Constitution, the rule of law, and it doesn't always work perfectly. But it it you know it's it is a still and a remarkably durable system, and so. But I also think there's going to be a lot of pain in the near term. These these inflation these inflationary pressures are not going away. I see it here in Austin in rents. Uh, you know, you see it in California in rents. I think there's going to be a lot of more of this internal migration, and I see that as well here in Austin. I mean, people from California moving here. I mean, I it, it, I don't in some ways I don't even recognize this town from what it was even a few years ago. I mean, I was out driving or riding my bike last night. I mean, just the flood of new people coming into town. So I think there are going to be states that this recovery, and I think I, I'm not optimistic for California to be honest with you because of all the structural problems in your state that all three of you know very well and know better than I do. But you know, so I think that the that we're going to see the high gradation or high grading of different states, you know, benefiting from a lot of this turmoil. So, you know, Colorado, Utah, Texas, you know, su succeeding at the expense, I think, of some other states. But uh, 
but I'm long-term optimistic, but I think there are going to be some, as, as, as Alex put it, you know, headwinds that are going to be significant and it's going to be very hard for the poor and the working class. I mean, just much more friction for them because of the prices of, of energy, housing and mobility, which, uh, we, we talked about last week in Houston and I, I, I want to be more optimistic on those, on those ter- on those issues, but uh, I see a lot of friction there. Well, and it's, it, you're right. It, it, I think it's going to take what is already a tough situation in many places, California being kind of the exemplar, and making it even tougher. So I think we're, we've are we got to buckle up for a, a rough ride ahead, but hopefully you're right. I think uh, uh, the long-term <clears throat> ability of Americans to innovate their way out of a problem and come up with uh, ways of, of uh, moving things ahead is very, very strong. So we're with you on that. Gentlemen, thank you for being part of the yes, that was future podcast. This has just been great. And uh, we wish you the best. Well, that's very kind. Thanks. Thanks. Flattered to be invited. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us.